0: Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Behind every great song is a great writer. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth interviews with the accomplished and influential writers and composers behind some of those great songs, from the well-known to the ones you should know. On each episode, we feature a different writer sharing his or her insights into the creative process, their approach to the craft, and the stories behind the songs, from the hits to some of the lesser-known deep cuts, Whether you're a songwriter, a music lover, or just a fan of pop culture, be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes so you don't miss out on a single episode. We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think by sharing your thoughts at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Because He Lives,
1: recorded by David Crowder and written by today's guest on Songcraft, gospel music legend Bill Gaither. Gaither is best known to general audiences for pinning He Touched Me, which earned Elvis Presley a Grammy for Best Inspirational Performance in 1972. Gaither and his wife Gloria virtually pioneered the inspirational genre by applying traditional theological themes to the struggles and realities of everyday life. The pair was jointly honored with the Christian Songwriter of the Century Award by the American Society of Composers and Publishers in 2000. Additionally, Gaither has received a half-dozen Grammy Awards and more than 30 Gospel Music Association Dove Awards, including the Songwriter of the Year honor for 1969, 1970, and every year from 1972 through 1977. Many Gaither songs are staples of church hymnals, including Because He Lives, There's Something About That Name, Gentle Shepherd, Get All Excited, Jesus We Just Want to Thank You, and The Family of God. Gaither's songs have been recorded by the Statler Brothers, Glenn Campbell, Christian Chenoweth, the Oak Ridge Boys, the Preservation Hall Jazz Band, Johnny Cash, and many others. He has sold countless millions of albums as a solo artist, in partnership with Gloria, or as part of the Bill Gaither Trio and the Gaither Vocal Band. In 1991, he launched the Homecoming Video Series, which became one of the most successful mail-order businesses in the country, and nearly single-handedly revived the popularity of Southern gospel music. Gaither was responsible for earning the first gold record for a gospel label, and he was inducted into the Gospel Music Association Hall of Fame in 1983.
0: Bill, welcome to Songcraft.
2: Scott and Paul, it's good to be with you.
0: You know, Bill, in many ways, you were a bridge between the old Southern gospel sound and what has come to be known as contemporary Christian music. What were some of your early influences growing up in Alexandria, Indiana, that shaped your musical sensibilities?
2: In 1948, or maybe it's 49, I don't know exactly when, I was probably in the 6th or 7th grade, turned on the radio one morning while doing farm chores, and turned on the radio, and uh, at 6.30 in the morning, here was a gospel quartet, a uh, keyboard player, just acoustic piano, and four guys singing uh songs that were much different than what we were doing in the church. The church songs, the hymns were pretty tame compared to what they were doing. Uh And I I said, what in the world is that? Plus, I think I fell in love with four-part male harmony. There Uh was something about those guys uh, uh, taking low bass singers. At that time, the tenors were not quite that high. But making some great... uh, Harmonic sounds. It got my attention, hmm. and I quickly found out that was a regional quartet from Indianapolis because I grew up in central Indiana. Right. I quickly found out there were levels of sophistication in music. Hmm. I found out uh, from the south there were a lot more of these guys, and very quickly I, I said, Some of them are better than others. Right. I can remember the first time I heard. Kobe Lister and the Statesman, an RCA Victor, yeah, doing some pretty cool, cool stuff for that time.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: And uh, then I heard the old Blackwood Brothers. Bef- uh, yeah. This was the original bunch before they had a, a wreck and took out two of their primary uh, members in '54.
1: Well, I'm I'm curious if you, um, obviously, everyone knows that gospel music was of course, uh, a huge influence on you. Were there other things that you were hearing on the radio, uh, other types of music that, that caught your ear as a kid?
2: Absolutely. In the early 50s, in the pop field, this is before Elvis, before 54, there were quartets. Right. The four aces, mm-hmm. the four preps, the four lads. We will have these moments to remember.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The
2: Ames Brothers, the Mills Brothers. There were so many popular quartets. And in all right. fairness the statesmen of Blackwoods got a lot of their sounds from that field and also from the black gospel field the golden gate quartet sure. and the harmonizing poor the you know the mixture of all these sounds at the same time country music was was uh was also there in the early days the the tag they put on a lot of the country music was hillbilly music
3: right huh
2: i wasn't real crazy about Bill Monroe and the and the Bluegrass Boys and all of those, but I did like Red Foley. Sure, his, his vocals were more pop,
3: kind of smooth. Uh, yeah.
2: So you put all of that influence together, and and as far as our writing is concerned, I I suppose our early writing was pretty close to what what you you would call a southern ballad. Sure. For instance, to me, one of the greatest songs ever written was Hank Williams. Did you ever see a fallen star light up the purple sky? And and as I wonder where you are, I'm so lonesome I could cry. I don't care whether that's a, whether that's a secular lyric or a love lyric
3: right, or a Christian lyric. It's
2: just great poetry. Right, you know?
3: absolutely. Yeah. And
2: I don't think I recognized it right at the time, uh, mainly because I I probably couldn't get by Hank singing because to <laughs> me that's <was> too nasal. <laughs>
0: right. Of where right. I came from. That's like a lot of people say about Bob Dylan as well. Absolutely, and many poets.
1: Well. Um, Bill, I understand that you attended the, the Stamps School of Music in Dallas uh, in the summer of 1953 after your junior year of high school. And for those of our listeners who don't know, talk a little bit about the, the Stamps Quartet and the Stamps Baxter Singing Schools and um, what influence that had on American popular music.
2: For me, that was what today we would call a summer music camp. Yeah. And it was for three weeks. I had never been out of the city limits of my little town here, uh-huh. 6,000 6, people in, in our town. I left on that train to go to Dallas, Texas. I don't think I ever called back for the three weeks. And you know why? I found 600 other kids who were just as strange as I was, <laughs> who wanted to hear harmony and hear parts yeah. and, 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 and get together and form groups and sing this stuff. And more than that, learn technique. Yeah, I can remember remember when I finally when I went to college. I did not major in music. I majored in English, but I minored in music. And and the music was a breeze. I had to work my fanny off to make a good grades in a, mm. in, in English. Right. But music, any kind of anything on theory. And my prof said, "Where in the world did you learn theory and that stuff?" Well, it was from a music school down in Dallas, Texas. Huh. Yeah. It, and and one might ask, "Why Dallas, Texas?" And, and I'll give you as much history as you want to know on this. If I, if I could see you now, you could raise your hand and say, I hope you're done talking because I'm done <laughs> listening. And so, uh,
3: no, but, go for it.
2: <laughs> but uh, in 1902, a guy by the name of James D. Vaughn started a publishing company in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. Hmm. And this publishing company had grown out of what they call Sacred Harp. Singing, right. Which was really a, pretty much a Southern phenomenon.
1: That's the shape note singing, right? Yeah.
2: The, uh, the doe would be one shape, the ray would be another shape. Mm. And they had two schools. They had one in January and one in June, and they would publish, it. They would publish new books every January and every June huh. of, of, of new tunes. Most of those tunes died. A few stuck to the wall, but not very many. Right. And out of that school came a student by the name of Virgil Stamps, V.O. Stamps. Huh. He went down to Dallas, Texas and started a company of his own called the Stamps Quartet Music Company. Now this was in 1930. Right. They did it around a radio station and they had unlimited wattage where they would put a male quartet on every morning and every noon and sing these new songs. Huh. Unlike Mr. Vaughn, Virgil Stamps started attracting a little bit of what we call more commercial writers. Right. Writers like I don't know whether his name means anything to you or not, but Albert E. Brumley.
3: Sure. The yeah.
2: old gospel tune I'll Fly Away. Oh, he right. wrote that. Yeah. And songs like Turn Your Radio On. Yeah. And they published songs like Where Could I Go But To the Lord. Yeah. And some songs that did stick to the wall. And yeah. so he just took the model that Mr. Vaughn had, but he took it farther. He, he was a, probably a, a bigger marketer and sold, they said, millions of, uh, of gospel hymn books. Yeah. And at that point, those people made their living basically on printed music.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and I understand that when you attended the the stamp school um, down in, in Dallas, that that was where you first put together a, a little quartet of your own. Um, tell us about that group and, and what your aspirations were at that point.
2: I identified so much with Barbara uh, Mandrell. I was country before country was mm, cool. Right. I, I was gospel before gospel. I, I I was embarrassed to tell the kids. Yeah, uh, my favorite music. You know, I like the four preps. I like the four aces and all the pop guys. But I, but my real darling is this little thing called gospel quartets. Wow.
3: Yeah. You know,
2: it was just strange. Now, no problem at all. You know. Right. But by being down there, you, you had all these kids that that you were in the majority down there. Okay. So we put together four guys. Uh, Charlie Hodge was a kid that about my age. He was from Decatur, Alabama. He and Vance Windsor, also from Decatur, and then another kid by the name of James Hopkins. We put together a group, and a good thing happened. We starved to death. <laughs> I was out of high school <laughs> then. Yeah. I'd graduated from high school and thought I was gonna make my living doing this. Yeah, We called the group the Pathfinders. Why? I don't know. I don't even know <laughs> what we were looking for, and I'm not sure that we ever found it. But, <laughs> but we very quickly said, you know, or I did, after about eight or nine months, I said, we're not as good as the statesmen. we're not as good as the Blackwoods, and I don't think we're ever going to be that good. Yeah. I left and went home, went to college. Charlie uh, went to Springfield, Missouri, and then he got drafted and was shipped to Germany. And there was another Southerner who got drafted about That's the same right. time by the name of Elvis Presley. Yeah. And they were in the same uh, outfit, They and, and they quickly got together totally over gospel music, started singing around a piano. And Charlie, when he came home, he lived in... Graceland, uh, until Albus died, he played rhythm guitar, yeah. gave him his scarves, and right. gave him water, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well,
0: you, you mentioned after the Pathfinders, you went to college, and uh, the Bill Gaither Trio <laughs> was founded in 1956, and that was a true family singing group with your brother Danny and your sister Marianne. What, what kind of songs were you singing at that time when you started the trio?
2: Anything the statesmen of Blackwoods were singing, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the Spear family, and we just went out and... And, uh, you know, Marianne was a pretty good singer, and I've never been a great singer and never professed to be, but my brother was outstanding. Mm. And, and so uh, we did concerts, working our way through college, doing that on a weekend, through the week, singing for the Kiwanis Club, the Lions Club, singing something like Back Home Again in Indiana, mm. when Irish eyes are smiling. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. You know, anything to, and paid our way through school. Well,
1: you you know, Bill, I, I... I Everyone knows that you're a, a, a talented songwriter, performer, but you're also a, have a knack for being a talented promoter and, and an entrepreneur. How did you manage to, to really build an audience for the trio early on?
2: You know, that's a very good question. And I think it's very important for young young writers and artists to understand this. And and at this at this age I have a lot of young artists that say, Can I pick your brain? you know. Yeah. And uh I've been tempted a couple of times to turn on my meter, but, at, but I but haven't. So I, so I, okay, let's talk. Okay. How do we get to the next level? That's the mm. question I've heard a lot. Yeah. And I said, are you singing in the area? Yeah. And here's the next question I ask. Do they ask you to come back? Huh. <laughs> yeah. Again and again and again yeah. and again. Yeah. I can think of churches in Indiana. I don't know how many times I went to the Nelson Street Church of the Nazarene. I don't know how many times we were up there because the pastor said we need to have you about every 5 to 6 months because you you bring sunshine and, wow. and you bring joy and you, know, yeah. you help you know you help uh you help our church worship, you know. Hmm. And I started there where I mean just where I was. And and in talking to these kids, I asked them that, and they said, well, we sing around, but churches are kind of strange here. They're kind of different here. And I said, oh, they are? Tell me about it, you know. Uh, and- <laughs> you know. I said, can I tell you something very kindly? If it doesn't work in a church in Racine, Wisconsin, it's probably not going to work on the Shrine Auditorium stage in Los Angeles.
3: Oh. Uh.
2: And you don't think that's true? Johnny Carson's from the farms in Nebraska. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And you know what? It worked on the farms in Nebraska, and it worked on national television longer than any other person's ever done that. Right. And I don't think marketing is a bad word. Right. Mm. I think a lot of that is a matter of sensitivity and knowing who was in the room. Remember the guy that that lost his life in the Johnstown flood, got to heaven, and uh, asked St. Peter, could I, could I tell the people what happened down there? That was a terrible flood. St. Peter said, oh, we'd be happy to get you a group of people. Tell your story. Now, don't forget, Noah's going to be in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> That's good.
1: Well, and I understand, Bill, that one of the uh, one of the openings that, that you found when you were starting out with the, the early days of the trio was you managed to land a, a radio show.
2: Oh, oh, yeah. In fact, it might have been one of the cr- uh, first Christian radio stations that I knew of in Anderson, Indiana.
3: Huh.
2: And I had a, I had a friend in college who never came to school without a shirt and tie. That wasn't me.
3: <laughs>
2: but he was a salesman. And so he heard us sing, and he said, we need to get you on the radio. And then, at the same time, another friend I had had a great radio voice and was already working there as a news announcer. He went on and became a national news broadcaster. His name was Mort Crimm, So we had this voice of God, young guy with this announcing voice, Yeah. this young trio, and this salesman who could sell anything. (laughs) That's
3: pretty good. It's a good team.
2: So we came on every day at 1230 singing, Just a melody, heaven's harmony, I can hear the sweet paradise music. (laughs) That was 56 and 57. I hadn't written a song yet
0: yeah uh, well when when you did start writing songs after you guys had done the Kiwanis Club and sang the standards what what was the first song that you ever wrote
2: when we first started uh, singing back in 56 57 we were just singing the songs the Statesman Blackwoods were singing and they were singing songs written by Mosey Lister or no man stands alone how long has it been um, songs like uh, till the storm passes by and uh, they were just wonderful songs And they were singing songs to Stuart Hamlin, the old guy that wrote, this old house once knew my children, this old house once knew my wife. It is no secret what God could do. Those Mm -hmm. were what I call professional songwriters. They were singing songs written by Iris Stamphill, who wrote many things about tomorrow. I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. I mean, good, good songwriters. After they got popular and started having an audience, And they will tell you the same story. They thought they could write songs better than the professional writers, and they started singing their own material. Now, if you are a singer slash songwriter in the secular field, Bob Dylan's a good example. Okay, but but if you're just a performer, by performer, I don't, I'm not, and by saying just, I don't mean that in a bad kind of way. Right, sing the best song available. Now, you know and I know in country music today, in pop music, the artist, if he doesn't have his name on it as a writer, probably not going to record right. a song in a lot of cases. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. That's been around for 50, 60 years. And Jake Hess, who was part of the Statesman, said this. I said, why did you leave the Statesman? said, because, you know, I just got tired of singing songs that were really inferior, and we were trying to promote our own tunes, and they weren't hmm. that good, Bill. And I make a strong, strong case for this. I think great artists in the secular field, I think Barbara Streisand came up, a great, great voice, singing great, great songs. And I don't think she ever made any compromise at that point.
3: Hmm. Yeah. It
2: just had to be a great song, and if it wasn't, she wouldn't sing it. So by the early 60s, we would buy the new Statesman record and say, I can't sing this to regular people. They can do it because they're big. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we went back at first and started arranging old hymns. And finally I said, I think I got an idea. And, and the ideas weren't that great, but I can remember in 61, I wrote a little song called I've Been to Calvary. And in the, in, in the gospel field as it was then, it was a fairly good song.
4: I've never traveled far around the world. I've never seen the many thrills
1: and sights unfurled. But I have taken the journey of journeys for me. Up Calvary's mountain,
4: there my savior. To see. I've been to I can say I've
3: it
2: was just expressing something I felt, and the people loved it.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: So then I wrote another one, wrote another one, and it was <laughs> 30 or 50 songs before we finally, uh, finally wrote, uh, He Touched Me, yeah. Oh, He Touched Me. Yeah.
1: Uh, In 1959, you became an English teacher at Alexandria Monroe High School, and that's where you first met your future wife and songwriting partner, Gloria, who was teaching French at the school. Um, Talk about how the two of you first got together and started collaborating on music together and, and what that collaboration looked like, how it worked.
2: First of all, I I really do not like professional marriages, <laughs> and I think a professional marriage is wh- when a pastor needs a music director and marries one. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> and I think it happens politically. I, I think it happens too many times. Yeah, uh, I just met a girl down the hallway that I just thought was the cutest thing, and I was in love with Doris Day when I was a kid. Yeah. and and I was pretty square uh, in high school, mainly because I had this weird. <laughs> <laughs> this, this weird secret life. <laughs> music, you, know, you know, not many good looking girls you could say that to because they want to know, can you dance? You know,
0: okay? right. uh, no, but I can sing in a quartet. <laughs> uh, I, I
2: see this pretty girl down the hall and I'm just interested in her, and we start uh, going out to lunch talking about politics. I'm, I'm extremely interested in politics, always have been. Love current events. Talked about literature, talked about poetry. I love it. We talked about plays. And after I thought I had her hooked, and she really loved me, I said, i got to tell you another thing. What is it? Well, I like this thing called gospel music. And I played her the Spear family singing. I've been to Calvary, I can say. To which she said, "That's good. And I said, you like that? She said, yeah, I like that. Well, let me show you something else I pitch it off. so I'd play her something else. And, and quickly I found out she loved the Lord, mm. and she didn't, you know. The message of the gospel is the same yesterday and today and forever. Yeah. The rapper that it comes in has changed and changed and changed and will continually change. Mm. And some of the right rappers you'll like better than others and some you'll say, you know, that, that doesn't speak to me. Right. Yeah.
0: You, you know, you, you mentioned songs that do appeal to some and, and don't appeal to others. Uh, one song that you mentioned before that has uh, appealed to a whole lot of people is He Touched Me, uh, which was originally recorded by Doug Oldham in 1963. I'd love to hear about what inspired you to write that song and why you think it resonated with so many people.
2: The, the inspiration was, if not any big fantastic story, Doug uh, was one of my outlets. Because he was traveling and singing, and this is way before just going into a studio and showing an artist a song. I mean, back in those days, the way you promoted a song is you got in the guy's car and went out with him, and, and he was singing, <laughs> and you said, hey, i got a song I think could work here. So Doug had sung I've Been to Calvary, a song we wrote called In the Upper Room with Jesus, and uh, Have You Had a Gisemite, some of our early tunes. And so I'm just traveling with him. He was singing in in, in a a revival meeting. And his father was an excellent speaker and quite a poet himself. He'd Mm. written some songs. So he said on the way back from one of our meetings, as an hour drive back, Bill, there's something about the word touch, the master's touch. You know, you need to write a song called He Touched Me. Mm. And on the music, when, uh, and I wrote it by myself one Sunday morning, probably about 40, 45 minutes. It was one of the easiest songs I ever wrote. Some huh. songs took a lot of time.
3: Yeah.
2: But uh, on the music, we say, He Touched Me, title suggested by Dr. Dale Oldham. Huh. So I believe credits are very, very important. Yeah. Didn't have to do that, but uh, I, I think it's important to let people know where it came from. Oh, he touched So uh, I gave it to Doug the next morning, uh, or the next day, and he said, man, I love this. So they took it to the meeting the next week, and he called back, and he said, but there was something about the song, he touched me, oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy. It was touching a nerve. At the same time, there was a faith healer out of Pittsburgh by the name of Catherine Kuhlman, who, who was on some national radio programs. She got a hold of that song. And on every service of healing that they ever did, she would start singing, He Touched Me, wow. Oh, He Touched Me, and Oh, the joy. So much that the first time the trio ever went to Los Angeles to do a program. Our, we had a 3,000-seat auditorium that was filled the first night. Wow. Only because she told the people, the people who wrote this song are coming to town. Wow. There was something supernatural about the song. Hmm. That, that we did not understand. And then by that time, then the quartets, I can remember when Brock Spear called me one night and said, Bill, send me 300 more copies of sheet music. This is not records. This is sheet music, 50 yeah. cent sheet music for people to sing.
1: Wow, that's amazing. I said,
2: you mean you're selling that much of that sheet music? The last I'd heard, we had, before they went on computers, we had sold over, weeks, sold close to a million copies of sheet music alone. Uh,
1: that wow. alone. wow. Well in, in 1966 the Bill Gaither Trio released an album called Sincerely which included your own version of He Touched Me um, and it was the first album that you released on Heartwarming Records which was distributed by the Benson Company. Uh, yeah. Tell us how that association with the Benson Company came about and what it did
2: for your career. John T. Benson was the father uh, and the founder of the company. He had two sons named uh, John Jr. and Bob Benson. Bob uh, had just uh, uh, helped uh, J. Cass organize a group called the Imperials, right? Which became one of the first gospel groups that slid over into the contemporary field. So the uh, so here again, I'm a I'm a promoter, okay? So I got these songs and. Uh, And so I asked Polly Grimes, who promoted the Imperials, what would it cost me if I got them on Thursday night on their way to Chicago and Detroit on Friday and Saturday? Right. Because Alexandria is just a few miles north of Indianapolis, and I I knew they could drive their bus through and do it. So she told me, and so Gloria and I, by now we're married, had to get out and tack up posters on on telephone uh, poles all over the county to tell people <laughs> these guys are coming to town. And a lot of people, you, you know, they said, the Imperials, who? You know, they guess who? <laughs> we only had a little auditorium seat to 500 people, but we sold it out and, and had enough to pay their fee for them to go on. And also they ate at the house. <laughs> and while right. they were at the house, I, uh, I, Gloria's a good cook and we were good hosts. I said, by the way, we just wrote a song. So uh, I played it for them, and they said, yeah, you know, we can sing that. Bob Benson was with them that night, and uh, the uh, our little trio opened up for them, okay? right. Now, I was a smart local group. I, I knew nobody had bought a ticket to hear this local group that they could hear anywhere in any church around. <laughs> so I sang three quick songs and got off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> but in those three quick songs, Bob Benson came to me and said, are you recording? And I said, "Oh, we've got a couple of garage recordings here." I said, "Well, would you like to record on our label?" Now you got to understand something. We did a couple of garage recordings with a piano and overdubbed a an organ. But to record on on the heartwarming label meant we could record with union players in the RCA studios, the old Elvis studios, with the players, you know Harold Bradley and all those guys yeah, who played sure. for Elvis and everybody and we did it and interestingly enough we we sold 5,000 maybe 10,000 copies hmm. we did the second one sold 5,000 10,000 copies and a big selling album back then by the Imperials and, and, and the full time groups would have been 25 maybe 50,000 and then my sister got married uh, and had to quit right and uh so we tried out a couple other people to sing with us, and they were good, but it wasn't working. So finally I told Gloria we were going to go to a church, and I said, Honey, you need to sing with us. She said, I'm not a singer. I said, I know you're not, but you're pretty, and, he, and you're my a- wife, okay? <laughs> so I taught her a couple of easy tunes, and she did, quote-unquote, a couple readings, Huh? Okay. Those quote-unquote readings became the power behind this crazy little group. Wow. We did the first one with her, called At Home in Indiana, that had a new song we had just done called There's Just Something About That Name, but it had a reading in it.
4: something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance.
3: Heal the broken, raise the dead. At the name of Jesus, I've seen sin-hardened men melted, derelicts transformed, the lights of hope put into the eyes of a hopeless child.
2: And then a new song we'd written, is called The King is Coming, about the second coming, which also had a reading in it. And I'll never forget the marketing department calling me and saying, you're not going to believe this, but this album's gone to 25,000. I said, oh, that's great. Called me back. It's done fifty thousand. Called back. It's done a hundred thousand. It's done a hundred. Wow. It's done. It's a quarter million. It's three hundred thousand, and we're saying. I don't believe this. Uh, In my life, there have been some God things, what I call God things, that's so big, I don't understand it.
1: Just regarding the At Home in Indiana album, you you said sold 300,000 copies or more. Uh, A lot of the songs on that record, you mentioned something about that name, The King is Coming. Also, uh, I'm So Glad I'm a Part of the Family of God, I believe, was on that album. And and those have become real staples uh, in the in the church community um, in 1971 uh, follow-up uh, album because he lives um, that was another one of those songs that just became a staple in many houses of worship
4: because he
1: know, good songwriters hope that fans will sing along, uh, but your music obviously takes that concept to a different level. Um, At that point in your career, were you writing music strictly with the idea of your own group performing them, or were you already mindful of creating melodies that would be accessible for average people to sing as part of their own worship in churches and similar gatherings?
2: You know, I think any writer just simply writes because it's something that he needs to express. And in all fairness, I think I think you hit on a nerve there because remember I said we first started singing the 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 professional group songs until they started dropping the quality of the songs. And probably our drive at that point and I gotta admit, I've often said there's nothing wrong with ego. Because, uh, you know, you, you don't want somebody performing with you on the stage who doesn't have a good, healthy e- ego. Egos are only bad when they get out of, out, out of, out of control. Mm, right. And so I say, go get your ego sanctified, and then we can deal with this. <laughs> and you know, have a good time. So I have to admit that I probably had a drive at that point to say, we, uh, we need a song that says this. Because there was an old hymn that went, he lives, he lives. Our question was this, I believe that, but why does that make any difference on Monday and Tuesday Hmm. and Wednesday and Thursday? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think a lot of the songs we wrote were, I think, theological absolutes and very, very true. But I think we went further and said, why does this make any difference at all? Yeah. And one of the biggest comments we have got on 50 years of writing from people is that they have said, thank you for your music. It got us true. Mm, yeah. and, we, and we wrote songs out of need. Yeah. We wrote songs when our kids were young to say, this life is going by so quickly. I, I, I just assume that both of you are much younger than I. But I, can, I can't tell you. Bat your eyes. Mm. and you're going to be 78 years old. (laughs) It goes by so quickly. And so I can remember when our kids were young, we wrote, we have this moment to hold in our hands and to Mm. touch as it slips through our fingers like sand. Yesterday's gone and tomorrow may never come, but we have this moment today. Now, for crying out loud, quit sucking your thumb. (laughs) For (laughs) we
4: have moment to hold in our hands and to touch as it slips through our fingers like sand yesterday's gone
3: It, it's a
0: fascinating concept, I, I think, for all writers, that the fact that you would write about things in your own personal life and then find them being so meaningful to a wide audience of uh, mostly strangers.
2: You know, what, you know what blows my mind? I mean, if, if, I understand if Madison County people in, LA, in, in, in Indiana understand it, and I understand it if Illinois folks, in Kentucky Tennessee folks, but to go to uh, uh, Oslo, Norway and yeah. sing Because He Lives, and you get to the course, and 8,000 people <laughs> are drowning you out They're in right. Norwegian. And I say, that's a gun thing.
0: Yeah, well, and, a... You know, and, and one of the things that contributed to, to your music becoming so widespread was when Elvis Presley, as you mentioned before, uh, recorded He Touched Me, and he won a Grammy Award for Best Inspirational Performance for that 1972 album. Shit. Just tell us again that story of how Elvis wound up recording it and what impact that moment had on your career as a songwriter
2: well Elvis recorded that only because he heard the Imperials uh, uh, do it every night and of course there's no doubt about it the only Grammys he ever won right. was for his gospel, the gospel stuff yeah. and yeah. from the very beginning the early Ed Sullivan clips he's singing peace in a valley he right. said and Ed Sullivan said he wants to sing this because this is part of who he is. Hmm. And he was explaining this to a secular audience. That was before gospel was cool. You don't have to do it. No. you don't have to do that now. Yeah. Because you know it's a part of Americana Yeah. But he'd heard the imperial you know, they would do a con I mean they would do the Las Vegas stuff and then when they got done. He had a piano up in his room, so he'd, he'd want the Imperials and the Stamps to come up there, get the keyboard player, and they'd start singing, My John saw of my dumb bird way up in the middle. I mean, I mean, he just loved gospel music. That's what Charlie did. I mean, Charlie Hodge connected with him because of gospel music. Yeah. And, of course, this is just one of those, another song that he saw. He, he had the Imperials to sing that every night on his Las Vegas show. Wow. He said, Get quiet now. They're going to sing this song, and you're going to love it, you know. Yeah. And, of course, the Elvis fans, you know, some of our biggest fans now these days, the Elvis fans are pretty much our age now, you know. So they're <laughs> right. all older, but they all say, they'll come out to our crowd and say, uh, you know, you're part of our family, don't you? I said, yeah, we're the Elvis connection. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, right. yeah, that was big. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, in 1973, uh, you and Gloria teamed with Ron Huff for an album called Alleluia, a praise gathering for believers. And that went on to become the first gold record by a gospel artist on a gospel label. Um, As you mentioned, you know, some of these things just happened. It was like these albums just blew up so big. Um, But coming back to your entrepreneurial instincts, uh, it seems that you had a particular knack for recognizing the entertainment demands of a Christian audience who felt ignored by the mainstream music industry. Um, and talk a little bit about some of the outside-the-box thinking as well as some of the challenges um, that contributed to your success in really pioneering this new genre that has now come to be called contemporary Christian music.
2: You know, you know up until then, uh, a lot of what, what our kind of music was, even as much as it was catching on, it was a little bit looking down the nose, uh, from churches. It's basically the big, major, major churches. This still wasn't totally legitimate uh, Christian music. It, it was really country ballad, you know, He touched me two, three. Oh, he touched me. I mean, just the style was a little bit country, Yeah. but old Ron put this serious, serious touch on it. Oh. And then this sweet little girl that I married had the ability that when Ron looked at her and Bob McKenzie, who was a producer, and say, Gloria, we need a verbal connection here. Mm. We need a quote-unquote reading. And boy, some of those uh, readings are just brilliant theology. If he were a philosopher, we could have debated him. If he were a warrior, we could have fought him. If he was a religionist, we could ignore him as an eccentric. But he was love, hmm.
3: Hmm. and
2: what do you do with that? Yeah. And the little song God gave the song in the middle of it. We just had a simple little country song. You ask me why my heart keeps singing. You ask me why. But then Ron had this little piano motif. Boop boop doo doo, doo doo doo
3: But since I
4: Source of music, I just can't help it. God gave the song.
2: thing. It just happened at the right time. I don't know of anybody in our industry that I hold in higher respect than Ron. The, the songs are one thing, but the package that they come in. You know, a lot of people never heard country music until Ray Charles. I can't stop loving you was around for a long time. Yeah. Ray true. took it to a whole new audience. Right. Ron Hop took our stuff. So then we would come into Towns with our trio, doing our little country kind of trio kind of thing, and some people say, you know, I'm only here because we did Hallelujah. I didn't know that much about what you did. So Hmm. you put all that together. Now, I I want to quickly say it wasn't because I was a brilliant marketer or anything. Uh, I mean, that just happened, and for that I have to be very grateful for it, and I think I, here again, I
0: think it was a God thing. Well, it, it's cool to hear the stories about the kind of the complexities of production, how they how they came together on these songs. And and one song, uh, Jesus, we just want to thank you. It's very direct, but it, it's uncomplicated in the best kind of way.
4: Jesus, we just want to thank you. Jesus, we just want. Thank you, Jesus. We just want to thank you. Thank you
0: for being so good. Tell, tell me a little bit about that song and about writing melodies that are really simple and yet rich and fresh.
2: They're simple because I am not a real sophisticated uh, keyboard player. Ben Spear one time told me, he said, Bill, I've never heard anybody play as long as you have played and improve as little as you have improved. <laughs> but, but in all fairness, that, that limitation is also a blessing. Sometimes staying with simple melodies, I'll never forget the story that was accredited to Lawrence Welk when he brought in a new player for his band and showed him the house he was living in and said, now, see, Harold, this is what happens when you stay with the melody. <laughs> <laughs> so I think many times we try to get creative and over-creative and yeah. over-complicated. We, we go past the solution.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Simple can be very, very powerful. And I, I remember one time I apologized to Ron say Ron, I'm sorry, my, my melodies are so simple. He said, do not apologize. Mm. He said, that kind of melody we can take and arrange and do beautiful, beautiful things with
1: it. In terms of music connecting with people, in the mid-1970s, you and Gloria assembled a non-denominational church hymnal called Hymns for the Family of God that was a huge success. Um, It included classic hymns, spirituals, gospel choruses, and uh, of course a handful of of Gaither songs, which were now introduced to an even wider audience uh, as people learned to sing them in their local churches. By bringing your songs into the hymn book in that way, how do you think that that ultimately influenced your legacy as a songwriter versus just as a performer?
2: I would encourage any young um, artist to surround yourself with good thinkers, good people. And at that time in my life, when you got people like Ron Hoff around you, Fred Bach, and Bob McKenzie, and Bob Benson, in all fairness, who were saying, hey, we can do this better. Up until then, hymnals were basically, you know, all King James uh, uh, scripture. It's all in the back. None of the scripture was ever related to the song itself. And we said, how can we shake this whole thing up? And we did in hymns of the family of God. That was the biggest selling non-denational hymnal up until that time. And, of course, hymnals are, you know, kind of lost favor. Period yeah. now because of uh, the, uh, the praise and worship uh, you know lyrics on the wall and that kind of thing right but at that time that was like what in the world has happened here you've got scripture in the middle of it you can't do that and you can't <laughs> do this until a whole bunch of people said I want this and I prefer this to our denominational handle well, up until then denominations had the lock on their denomination you yeah. couldn't have a handle unless the committee at Whether it's Baptist, whether it's Church of Christ, whether it was uh, Pentecostal, I mean, they had to put their sanction to it, you know. Right, sure. But a lot of people jumped out of the box on that one. But that happened only here again because you are who you hang with. Right. And if you hang with dull people who are not thinking any farther than you, you're probably not going to go any farther than that. So hanging around, going on vacations together and saying, could we do this? Could we do that? Mm. And we were young Turks at the time, you know. Yeah. <laughs> sure, we could do it.
0: Yeah. Well, in 1981, you returned to the male quartet format when you assembled the Gaither Vocal Band. Uh, so I'm wondering, why Why did you decide to return to that format after all the success that you'd had with the mixed male-female trio?
2: Good. That's a good question. For the first part of our career, our, uh, it, it, was, it was basically Gloria and my brother Danny and myself. Danny left in 77, Gary McSpadden came. It was still the trio. But we also had backup singers. And at one time, our backup group consisted of a guy named Lee Young, who was a great bass singer, and a young tenor by the name of Steve Green, and a a young alto by the name of Cosette Bird, and a young soprano by the name of Sandy Patty. Hmm. Yeah. And so one night, Gary and I said... So Gary was the original member of the Imperials. So Gary and I said to Steve and Lee... Do you know anything about quartets?" And they said, yeah, son. I said, let me teach you this. So we taught him an old statement song. Oh, it's a great, great morning, your first day in heaven when you stroll down the Golden Avenue. Just a fun, fun song. Yeah. Sang it. Tore the crowd up. They said, yeah. man, we love that, you love that. So uh, three or four months later we said, uh, we better add another tune to that second half. So we sang two songs, then we sang three. It wasn't long until the producer said, we need to do a record of the Gaither, of, of that quartet, what are you going to call it? And we went around with all different kind of names. We finally came up with that name, and Steve Green suggested it, the Gaither Vocal Band. I like that name, and it, it, that worked for us. And years later, uh, that was in 81, 82, whatever. When, it still is working. It didn't take Gloria long to say, I never professed to be a singer. Why don't you let me write... You love four part harmony. you can do so many more things with more voices right, and so that was the start of it and for wow. about eight nine years, we couldn't get any identity. Hmm. We were neither contemporary or southern gospel. We had one contemporary producer that made a a pretty hot contemporary sounding uh album for us
3: hmm. yeah
2: and, but it never it went very big we We got had a couple three number one on the radio play, but it didn't make any difference. Wow. Huh. So we couldn't get any identity. Hmm. We were neither hot nor cold, we weren't contemporary, we weren't Southern. And so we said to our record company, I don't know how much longer we can do this, but before we hang it up, let's do a project with our heroes that we grew up from the 50s. <laughs> right. J. Cass, Hovi Lister, uh, James Blackwood, J.D. Sumner, Jim Hill, I mean you name them, yeah, uh, I'll Howard I'll... Bessel Goodman. Yeah." He, and so we got about 15 of them in a room to do one song, Where Could I Go But To The Lord, which was an old Stamps copyright. Cool. Yeah. And uh, Larry Gatlin came by because he heard what we were gonna do, and he said, don't do that without me, because mm. that was his past too. Yeah. We did it for about two hours one morning in a little log Cabin studio, brought some Colonel Sanders in, and after that <laughs> we said, we gotta take a picture, let's go around the piano. So we went in the studio, around the piano, take a picture, and Larry Gatlin said, play something, Eva May. And she started playing an old uh, Albert Brumley song. I will meet you in the morning Mm. by the bright riverside. And they started singing. Then she played another one, and they sang some more, and they sang some more. And to all the young songwriters listening, I dare you, I dare you, write a song, That 50, 60, 70 years from now, a bunch of your young kids, who are now old kids, can get around the piano, and it will make instant community.
3: Mm, That's cool. Yeah. And
2: you are all one. The last prayer Jesus prayed was, Father, may they be one. Yeah. Create some songs that will last, and everybody can sing. That was the first video. Yeah we have done about 100 150 200 since then. Wow. And they say the total last count I heard was somewhere around 30 million videos and DVDs all across the world. We go over to Sweden and they have gather nights in their home where they play these and it's even in a poor language to them. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And it still brings people together.
1: I think it's fascinating, you know, the the homecoming video series is something, like you say, that you kind of stumbled into, but it, it became this hugely popular and became a very successful mail order business for you guys, and you really tapped into a huge audience that was looking for um, kind of this traditional gospel music and starting in the 1990s. What I find so fascinating about that is that you had already tapped into a huge audience that was looking for an updated version of gospel music in the 70s, what kind of became known as contemporary Christian music. And then here you are, the same guy who's tapped into the audience looking for the old traditional music. I just think it's it's interesting that you were able to connect with such a wide range of people who were looking for meaningful music um, that spanned all sorts of genres.
2: Well, you hit the nail on the head, and there a lot of times I get asked, what do you want them to say about you when you're gone? And one of the words I come up with, and I do not apologize for this, I think I'm a bridge. And I, you know, any time I do interviews, especially with people who think the music's passing by, they'll say, what do you think about this young stuff? And I say, well, to be honest with you, I think it's pretty much like it's always been. There's a lot of stuff coming out, and very little of it will stick to the wall. Right. But you got to understand, back in, when we got started in the 60s and 70s, very little of it will stick to the wall. I hope some right. of it will, but we're all praying a little bit will stick. But give them a chance, because some of it will. And when I hear days of uh, of, of, of Elijah, behold, he comes, yeah. riding on it. I say, you know what? that's going to stick to the wall. you know. Yeah. I didn't write that. I wish I did. You know?
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and,
2: uh, yeah. uh, so there was probably resistance to what we did until Round Huff came along. Yeah. And everybody has a right. Uh, everybody has a chance to do what he is going to do. And I will fight for that chance because the rapper keeps changing. The message is the mm. same. But man, has it changed since the day of uh,
0: Martin Luther. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Bill, you've written so many songs that have stuck. In fact, there, there's a song uh, uh, I remember on one of the Gaither Vocal Band records that says, you might forget the singer, but you won't forget the song. And uh,
2: Singers come and go and fade away.
0: Absolutely. And, and that's, that's how I feel about your music. They, these are unforgettable songs. And um, we just want to say thanks to you for, for those songs and for taking the time to have a conversation with us today, man. It's, it's really been great. It's
2: been my privilege. Blessings. Yeah. Everybody.
1: Thanks again to Bill Gaither for joining us on this episode of Songcraft. Be sure to stop by our website at songcraftshow.com to hear additional episodes, find out more about the show, or let us know what you think. We'll see you next time.